Warning, this episode contains some strong opinions and a small amount of coarse language. Audience discretion is advised. Welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algeman. Data is everywhere in our businesses and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. Today, we welcome Dr. James Richardson. Dr. Richardson is the founder of Premium Growth Solutions, a strategic planning consultancy for early-stage consumer packaged goods brands. As a professionally trained cultural anthropologist turned business strategist, he has helped nearly 100 CPG brands with their strategic planning. James is the author of Ramping Your Brand, How to Ride the Killer CPG Growth Curve, a number one bestseller in business consulting on Amazon. And he also hosts a podcast called Startup Confidential. James, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Anthony. So like we do with all of our guests, uh, first-time guests, uh, please take a moment and just tell the audience a little bit more about your career and how you ended up doing what you do now. Sure, sure. I uh, I began my career as a uh, a lowly doctoral student in culture and anthropology. I, I got my degree, played around uh, very briefly in academia, and then decided to leave uh, for reasons that don't concern your guests <laughs> and which I try to forget. Um, and I went into market research because it seemed like the best bridge for a kind of geeky, detail-oriented cultural anthropologist. And, you know, for those of you who don't know much about the discipline, uh, we're focused on small-scale small sort of social dynamics. Hmm. Um, but in the American school, we're very much focused on interpreting symbols, um, how people create meaning with symbols, how people signal things or conceal things, hide things. <laughs> My dissertation was on middle-class untouchables in, in urban India who were hell-bent on concealing their caste origin from everybody, mm. uh, in some cases from themselves, through very complicated psychological denial. <laughs> um, so it was a thorny theoretical thing that interested me. Anyways, it uh, it didn't provide a great segue into the business world, I'll be really honest. So when I went into corporate market research, I focused, uh, I joined a firm that was interested in having uh, very smart, what they call qualitative researchers hmm. uh, to work for clients such as Whole Foods, which was growing very quickly in terms of store sales, year-over-year store comps. Um, and they were starting to build a ton of stores. So we, the company that I worked for at the time, the Hartman Group, we got brought in by the, by the leadership team to really understand their core shopper, the one that made them all the money. Right. Um, how can we create more of these? How can we make sure that as we open stores at a ridiculous pace that we're reproducing the magic we have? And, and as retailers, they understand that that's all about understanding shopper behavior. And, you know, retailers have an advantage, which is there's no intermediary between them and the, the humans who make them money. <laughs> They're in their building every day. <laughs> so um, my clients, who I now work for, are the suppliers to retailer, right? So they make widgets and they have a barrier to the, to the consumer if they sell in a physical store. Uh, and... Um, so I did that work. I worked, you know, in market research for a while. And then I got into more executive level consulting because what happened was we were developing a lot of expertise on um, 
some major social and cultural trends which are affecting how people uh, selected well actually the loyalty of consumers to established iconic brands which we all know oreos you know l'oreal cosmetics people were starting to flee these brands and they were fleeing them permanently hmm. right um and they were fleeing to what well they were fleeing to natural organic brands that cost 100 percent more 200 percent more 300% more, 400% more, um, things that made no rational sense to either economists, but most importantly to the marketers and those big companies. They, they, to them, this was not possible behavior. Hmm. Couldn't happen. Yeah. You know, we have 95% market share. We, our playbook is perfect. We've toned it for five, five decades. There's nothing wrong. But something's <laughs> well, the world, wrong. <laughs> the world changes, right? So, um, they, you know, we were the social scientists brought in to help leadership teams try to figure out, well, what are the mega trends that are changing under our feet that we're not paying any, what's the context around our business that we're not paying attention to? Mm. So, and that's the other thing that my field makes you really good at is really um, widening thy peripheral vision and looking at the context of any problem you're investigating. Mm. And so backing out as far as you can until you hit total irrelevance <laughs> and then slowly coming back in. <laughs> and it's pretty much the exact opposite of how like a data, a software coder thinks. Uh-huh. They, they're, they're building line by line and they have some tiny little software problem that they have to build a solution to. And so they, they actually don't look at any context. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what creates this need for something called debugging, at least my software folks tell me something because they haven't looked at the context. They right. built a whole bunch of micro solutions and then it has to get figured out later how it all is going to fit together. So my brain works the, the opposite way. Like you come to me with a business problem. And this is true for my current clients who are all, by the way, like venture backed startups. So these are small companies trying to go, they're trying to double every year, mm-hmm. which, you know, sounds easy if you're a million dollars, but it's actually not. Right. <laughs> um, so they're trying to double um, and they usually come with some tiny little narrow question that's bugging them. And so I sort of smile and then I, I tell them that, well, I'm going to put you through my process. And my process means that I don't really care about your question. <laughs> okay. Because, <laughs> because, uh, um, and, but I also guarantee that they'll be answered or you'll right. think they will be by the end. Because <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to look at the context of your business and we're going to do it mm-hmm. the right way. And so, unfortunately, for a founder who's emotionally overinvested in their business, which is my client base, that that's something that they actually, it's almost impossible, Anthony, in a small team, when you've built your whole, when you put your whole life into something, mm-hmm. to have the slightest bit of objectivity about it. Oh, completely. No. I mean, you can't even find this on corporate teams where they're paid on $250,000 a year to be professionals. They don't have any objectivity. So if they don't have any objectivity and they're paid to be dispassionate, bureaucrats, then it's never going to happen with a founder. And so I found it, my career has gotten a lot more satisfying because like the value of that third party external analyst is much higher with the client base I have, because in literally seconds, I can give them perspective that will make them money that they didn't know. Yeah. You know, whereas, um, it's not, it's a little more of a battle being a consultant to big companies as any management consultant will tell you to try to add value, add insight because they 
think you're, they're smarter than you are. So <laughs> the battle of egos. Um, but with my clients, they're just happy to have a, some kind of external perspective because they actually can't see beyond the fishbowl. They just can't. And I don't blame them. I would be the exact same way. In fact, I put myself through a at least a twice a year process of sort of beating myself up with a thorny branch strategically to try to get perspective on my own business. Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it, it, I think this resonates certainly with me and, and I'm sure it resonates with other entrepreneurs out there is that, you know, consulting and, and the kind of analysis and, and recommendations you're going to be making the value of that. And this is kind of foundational to data leadership is the foundation. The, the, the value of that is predicated on your ability to affect change. And to your point in large organizations, they're a lot harder to change in a material way. Now, granted a smaller change may have a greater net dollar impact, but in terms of a percentage, if you're dealing with a founder who has the ability to effectively turn their business on a dime, they could make a, a, a relatively small change that could completely transform the success of their businesses just because you were able to identify something that the data told you that they could have been seeing forever and not realizing. Yeah, and I think the other, you know, I'm a high-functioning uh, autism dude, uh, though I found that out when I was 35 years old, which I don't recommend. Um, and so I, I, I really don't care if you're upset emotionally by something I told you about you or your business. Mm -hmm. I literally don't care. Um, so, so it, I'm, I'm actually more effective with the people who are highly not objective, who need to be smacked hardest yeah. <laughs> because, um, and so I'm I'm all my content is sort of designed to send me those people. Mm -hmm and intimidate everyone else <laughs> because, and, and I'll be honest, most entrepreneurs, they don't actually want, they literally do not want the kind of analysis that I deliver. They don't want, they couldn't handle it. Right. So, but the people that can handle it um, are going to get the value because I don't actually, a lot of consultants censor the hell out of management consultants are famous for censoring shit. Right. Right. Yeah. You, you want them to like you at the end of it. Yeah, Cause then you got to retain. Right. Yeah. You want, <laughs> you want more work, right? So. You know, but I'm, I'm willing to be the slam bam ma'am for a fee. If I added the right value, that's more important to me that your business succeed than you, that you like me. Certainly. Well, <laughs> so I <don't> <laughs> yeah, I never, I never understood that. And I would never hire a, a, a consultant in my business. I would insist that they say anything. Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's well. This could take us down a rabbit hole that would last us hours. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't want to. I hope I haven't triggered any work trauma for you. Oh no, no. But I mean, I, I've, I've observed. You know, you observe consultants and and people that have different. Um, styles or values or yeah. or business models and right. the amount of change like you're you're kind of pegged at one end where you're like hey i'm going to help you as quickly as possible make the biggest change based on right. what i'm seeing and the, my recommendations and yeah. the data and, and my conclusions and i'm going to give you that unfettered because i feel like by you paying me i owe that to you and i and i would i would say that while right. I I probably care a little bit more than you have professed about how whether or not they respond to that um, in a, in a positive way, I 
I also have seen the other side, which they will literally say anything so long as the client is happy. And at some point, (laughs) (laughs) that's not the same business, right? At some point, that's a a different business. It isn't. And I, that's why I don't consult for, 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 um, I don't consult for even mid-market private companies. Hmm. They're too political. I can't stand, I don't, I personally don't get any joy from that. It drives me batty, but that's because of that neurology I referred to, you know, when you have ASD, like I, I just can't, I can't be that dishonest and you have to be now. Everything I just said, folks who are listening, don't do any of this if you're doing internal data consulting in your right. company. You have to become a politician or you will get fired. So I work for myself. So, you know, take from that what you need to as context about my advice. But I think that's you asked for an intro of how I operate. And it's very different, I would say, from an internal mm-hmm. advisor, even like yourself, Anthony, inside a large organization. You're going to have to to make data move in a complex bureaucracy, you have to put it inside narratives where it actually gets listened to because there's no, if it doesn't get listened to, it won't get heard and right. won't get acted on. So that's a different, and I'm just not, I'm really bad at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As you might imagine. <laughs> so I actually, I screen my clients pretty heavily. Um, and one of the things I won't even work for a startup that's got somebody from a big bureaucratic background because I know that they won't react well. Mm-hmm. I, I've been through it too many times. It's too predictable, and a lot of behavior is predictable, folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and to be fair, um, you know the work that you're doing is you're going to point out where yeah. things should change and how. Um, if they make some adjustments, then they'll do this. It's different, though, than the implementation phase of those changes, yes. where that's where <laughs> anybody probably needs to be a bit of a politician or ne- needs oh, yeah. to work and and yeah. in harmony with whatever their operations are, because they, you know, to make that kind of change happen in an operational context for an yeah. organization, it's a different type of skill set. And, and I've no, I've done both, and and, and yeah. I don't know which I like better, really, because sometimes it can be frustrating, and I'm sure you've had this experience where mm-hmm. you've come up with some really great analysis that you were really proud of and then the client didn't have the ability to take that or didn't want to take that or wasn't didn't have the courage to whatever the reason was they didn't implement what you knew would help them and that is frustrating for well yeah i mean you're in my old in in the world of consumer packaged goods at big companies if anyone happens to work at those listening uh they will recognize what i'm saying which is that the new product concepts are developed by the marketing division Mm in cpg companies is very odd yeah. you know if you go to 3m chemical in minneapolis it's actually the scientists who come up with the idea right but but in, but in cpg companies it's the marketers um and they will often do like very expensive research and come up with ideas that that have you know uh they would deliberately keep the researchers that they hire who are external mm-hmm. completely ignorant of any operational or executional requirements just so they get the widest possible. It's this notion that we want to get the kitchen sink. (laughs) And then what happens is that it's such a disastrous innovation model, not only from a data quality perspective, but also just from a money. I mean, it's because what happens is that I I found this out later in my career that a a big CBG company, the the only thing that the only idea they're going to execute, execute the only idea they will ever execute is something that can be made tomorrow in their current manufacturing technology that mm-hmm. they own which they paid off four years ago 
So they want paid off manufacturing assets to produce a new line of product. So that's really the only concepts that should be sent internally. And that's the only ones that will survive is what I found. <laughs> but for, for my early years, we would come up with all sorts of cockamamie ideas for new foods and stupid shit. And it was just like Kraft Foods is never going to make this because they don't have a plant that can do it. Hmm. And that's how the decisions are made. There's either a plant or there's not. <laughs> so, and they didn't want to, they didn't want to say, Hey, go do some cool research with to consumers and get their unmet needs, but filter all that for our current manufacturing assets. Because <laughs> so, you would wind up with very little Anthony. Right. Right. Most of what, most of what, like in food, most of what consumers want is actually something related to food service, delivery tech, online ordering tech. It's things like that. It has nothing to do with um, what Hershey's does. Right. So that um, I've been through that. That's an example of the silo effect and how people will collect data that is non-transmissible in the organization politically. Hmm. Like it's just worthless, literally worthless. <laughs> oh. um, and what blew me away is the amount of money spent on collecting that with those worthless innovation ideas. Huh. Whereas they could have been, just, they could have a, like at 3M, what they do is they just basically give, they've always given their R&D scientists a certain amount of weekly time to do literally academics, laboratory hobbies. And that is how things like 3M adhesive strips were invented. Mm -hmm. They just goof around. Yeah. And then when they find something, they're the ones who say, I think this might have commercial potential. Let's show this to the marketers. Mm -hmm. That's how they innovate, which personally is the only thing that makes sense to me. In other words, what, what you should be filtering is something you've already pre-vetted as commercially scalable in your organization. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, why, right. Would you go, why would you go collect ideas from like random consumers and then try to find something you can manufacture? That makes no sense because you have a massive ocean of ideas and there's no way it's beyond a needle in a haystack. But if your scientists who commercialize things tell you, well, we know we can scale this, but is there a need? That is a much smarter way to do this <laughs> in my opinion. Well, and, and what it sounds like, and I think this is interesting because I think like like your example, the 3M model, I think is how yeah. many folks would interpret, you know, would imagine all these CPG firms also work. And and what you're saying, that's not the case. It's, it's almost like these aren't CPG firms as people think about it at all. They are really marketing firms with product instantiations as a result of marketing designs. I mean, because that, that's it's more complicated. It's actually more complicated. I, I mean, so that I imagine it is. every business function of CPG firm is creating new product concepts and it's a constant shit show politically with mm -hmm. the leadership team as to who wins. Sales creates concepts, R&D creates concepts, marketers do. And that's what I really uh, found out later in my career. And it's basically just all holy hell. Um, and it's not just one company. It's virtually all of them. Hmm. And so it's this very... Uh, and that's because most CPG products fail. And I think that the, the whole industry is so cynical, the big guys, that they didn't mm -hmm. understand. Their approach was, well, let's just let's just have the kids all come up with ideas from like any, it doesn't really matter from where and why. And then we'll, we, the, the adults on the management team will pick. Right. It's very condescending. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, but that's basically what it is. And so everyone's creating these political data-driven decks for their idea. Mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating. I could write a whole dissertation on like data transmission and all this stuff inside bureaucracy, but that's not what I do. 
mm-hmm. anymore. I mean, what I do now is literally, I actually try to help clients only look at the data they need to. Mm-hmm. My clients have very little freaking spare time. They don't have racks of MBAs mm-hmm. who just make PowerPoint all day. Uh, they have barely time to sleep. So when I tell, when I, I, in my book, I talk about a very limited set of key performance indicators that mm-hmm. you need to be able to understand. Um, and it, I swear to God, when you look at a consumer packaged good business that's mature, the number of metrics, Anthony, these people track, it's hundreds and hundreds. Mm-hmm. All right. So if you put someone like that in a startup, they will want to spend all week looking in Excel. Mm-hmm. But the reality is there are probably four to five metrics that matter. And you only need to look at them about twice a year. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, well, so, you know, no, seriously, because the, a startup is about execution. It's not about an anal- analyzing the right. business all the time. But when you are Lay's potato chips, you analyze the business on an hourly basis mm-hmm. because you're managing out, out to five decimals of precision on profit, EBITDA, earnings per share, you name it. Right. And so they get really analytical. They get mm-hmm. super geeky. Um, whereas my clients, they just need to do basic fifth grade math on a couple mm-hmm. of things. <laughs> and I mean, on the surface, this sounds like heretical. We're on a data leadership podcast here and we're and talking about you, data how they don't matter. need any of this data. They don't need any of these KPIs. No. But it's no, not, no, the problem like, is data overwhelm. Exactly. It's not that they. Well, we're not talking about whether the analysis is sophisticated. It's just, I'll give you an example. Yeah. I have a, I have a client who, for whatever reason, he's a serial entrepreneur. So he has lots of funding to hire very expensive bureaucrats. So he brought in all these bureaucrats to work in his startup and they're very nice people. He filters out the jerks, but I mean, they're very nice people. Um, and they all play well together in a sandbox but I saw like there was an email forwarded to me from the company and I, it was literally like a, it was a same store sales analysis, which is actually one of the key KPIs. You have to be able to look even crudely in retail at whether or not your same store sales are growing month over month for more than like six months. Like it needs to sustain itself. And because right. that tells us something about the human behavior at the cash register, which is what I help my clients sort of decode. And, you know, it's a very simple concept. And measuring it in Excel is super easy. Again, it's fifth grade math. It's, it's no algebra required even. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> the problem is that <laughs> the, the email that I had, I mean, he literally found like 20 ways to cut the data. And he, put, he barfed it all up in the email. And it went right to the CEO of the startup who is, uh, and I, I've criticized him. I was like, you, why, would you, why would you even read this email? I would send it right back to them and say, what's the one line summary? You know, but, and this is what I think your listeners might be interested in. There's a tendency for people who are data geeks. And so, you know, you and I are one in our different ways to try to engage in, and this is something young people do more than anything. And this guy was doing, this young sales guy was totally doing this. He was basically beating his data chest. Mm. Like how many data points can I show that I master to the owner? You know, so because I'm so great, and it was totally a show off thing. Yeah. That email was performative. There were two lines in it that mattered strategically. 
you know, and this is the this is what I mean when I talk about over analysis yeah. and pe- and there's a performative side which are people trying to manage their career through data. Ooh, look at how I massage the data. Look how I, I'm so good at I'm so good at handling it, and and, becomes, and that's how you wind up with these bar females, and we've all seen them. Oh yeah, we've all received them. Um, and even if and the funny thing is when there's a summary and then they continue to barf. <laughs> Like they, they can't resist showing, see how good I am with the data. <laughs> Whereas that doesn't really help anyone because what it does is it invites everyone on the email to go down a rabbit hole. And here's the other thing it does. The social scientist notes, it actually invites people to nitpick. Mm-hmm. And when you get a bunch of smart people and you give them too much information that doesn't actually add value to what you're trying to do, you will get lost in a nitpicking battle. Mm-hmm. Right. As opposed to moving the key idea in the email forward. Right. So one of the things I do with, as a consultant is I don't drown, I don't share any of my backend analytics whatsoever with my clients, which of course would, <laughs> which means I would never get hired by a big company because, <laughs> right. you know, they, they want to see how you got there. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to tell you how I got there because I'm a professional and I know what I'm doing and you hired me because I don't make mistakes. So and I don't want to get you lost in that crap. Mm-hmm. I refuse to bring you there because we are having a very expensive discussion on an hourly basis, $1,000 an hour, <laughs> about what to do with your business. We don't have time for that nonsense. So if you don't trust me to do like the Excel ride, then bye-bye. Mm-hmm. not working with you. I'm certainly not going to share it with you after the fact either because that just sends you down another rabbit hole. So one of the things I learned early on in consulting for big clients, little clients, and even consulting internally is you've got to share just what you need to advance the discussion. Mm -hmm. If you share more than that, you invite a debate and debates shut down the ability to move forward. And if you, I I mean, if you, the minute you add three people to the thread, there'll be a debate if you share too much information. Mm -hmm. So this is about the art of concealing you know, how you, you know, got there. Now there are times politically where you have to work with someone internally, where you're going to have to sit down with a colleague and you're going to go through how you got there. That's called vetting the analysis before you distribute it. (laughs) But if your goal is to distribute the finding, you don't share how you got there. Yeah. Because I I I guarantee you. It's an interesting thought because I I totally, I I think we can all think of those emails, right? That have so much information. You're like, I don't even know what to do with this. Um, And then that's, that's a counterproductive amount of of detail. I, I, I paused a little bit mentally when you were talking about withholding some of the analysis or what have you, but I think you brought it back at the end and say, you're willing to go through that at the right level in the right discussion. And so that people understand how the analysis was done. I think that's important, but what you won't do, and and tell me if I'm paraphrasing incorrectly, but what you won't do is take what should be a high level strategic conversation and allow yeah. it to get no, bogged down in the weeds of the analysis yeah. because the yeah. conversation you need to have with that founder is about what to do about this analysis, what the conclusions here, not how was the analysis done. That's a place for a separate conversation for somewhere else. Correct, and I. So there, and some of this is about being a disciplined consultant too, because, you know, I work with multiple data streams in every engagement, just like a management consultant, you know, four, five, six, seven, sometimes 10 different data sets. We don't have time to, to, for me to walk them through how I got to my conclusion on all 10 of those. Right. There's no way. 
Yeah. And they're not paying me for that. They're trusting that I'm going to do it right. Or they're just not going to hire me, right? Now, I think um, internally, that trust level may be honestly lower in a company. <laughs> so, so an external consultant, part of their game, part of their game, so to speak, is to gain that trust so that they, no one gets bogged down in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't have time to do that in an engagement. And I've just done this, like my classic example is uh, consumer surveys, and I tend to do them in most of my work. It's a little, I, I do surveys with startups own fans. So we go, we do something, uh, your listeners will love this, called bias sampling. It's called purposive sampling in social science. So you actually are picking a biased sample and you know exactly how it's biased. Hmm. And in this case, it's repeat purchasers. Okay. Right. And, and we're going to ignore everybody who's just had it once. Because we don't really know what they think about the business. And we, and a lot of them basically don't care about yeah, you. They probably sense. didn't like the product. What we want to know, and this is sort of what's in my book, Ramping Your Brand, is like the key to driving exponential growth as an undercapitalized business when you're small is to get insight, behavioral insight on what behave, what um, is socially satisfying the end consumer with your widget. And if it's two things, it's two things. If it's three things, it's three things. Um, figuring that out qualitatively, which is really about having a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something machine learning cannot do yet. Not even IBM Watson can have a free-ranging open-ended conversation and, and des- derive these patterns. I haven't seen any evidence of that. Mm-hmm. It can find patterns, but not the kind of conversation I'm talking about. Because <laughs> if you want to get at people's, if you want, you want people to be somewhat honest about why they do something or what it meant to them, you actually have to create something called human rapport. And Watson cannot do that. Because hmm. people know they're talking to a machine. Right. Now, I think if we get to the point where they actually can't tell, like Blade Runner, <laughs> that's a different issue. But, you know, emotional rapport allows access to the researcher or the owner to their fans, sort of, you know, here's why, how I use your thing. Mm-hmm. If you can get that rapport going and get those, that insight, that actually allows you to design a quantitative survey to go right back to the same fans. Hmm. Then you can do something like, well, I've got fans telling me that they use it for weight management or they use it because it fills them up. And I can't, I don't, I talked to 15 of them, but they're all over the place, man. Okay. We have the range of variation and that only can be determined through, in my opinion, through soft interviewing. That's how you map range of variation. There's no algorithm that will figure that out because the algorithm has to be determined. (laughs) You have to preset the parameters. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, this isn't, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where we have some in, you know infinite all-knowing machine out there. So we don't have that. So we don't have God in a box. So we have to go determine what's the range of variation. Then once you know that, you know what to put on the survey. Then the survey can go and rank things. And so if I were to get, um, and I do get, I get my clients involved a little bit in the design of that. I mean, I let them look at the survey, obviously, and sign off on it. But I, what I don't let them do is is actually like <laughs> design all the details. Now, right. I swear to God, if I worked for a big company, Anthony, we would it would like take a month and a half to design the survey because they'd want to co-design it with me. Right. And I'm <laughs> so, and as I say, homie, don't play that game <laughs> because my clients have no qualifications to co-design the survey with me. They might think they do because they're a big company, but it's not true. <laughs> so so i don't i don't believe in sharing authority with people who aren't qualified that's sort of how i operate but if they want to 
suggest, uh, I think we're missing an item on the survey. And I had one random email in August, which suggests this is a, a behavioral driver, then we'll throw it in. Why not? Mm-hmm. Then we go and measure things. And once you measure, you can get a prioritization. And that quantitative, that quantifying of the range of variation of behavior allows you to make a smarter strategic bet. Mm-hmm. So I just walked you through sort of the back end of how I do my own data analytics. Um, I give a little client access to that process, but I certainly don't send them the notes and the raw. (laughs) I actually get them involved in the interviews themselves so that they feel like they're part of the process of data gathering. Mm -hmm. Um, And that enhances trust in me uh, and the whole process. Mm -hmm. But I think if you can't, like how I make, how I go through the process of analyzing the survey data, it's just, that's my little mystery. (laughs) Some of it's obvious, but not all of it is. Sure. Um, And I don't spend time like some market research companies would with their clients. Mm -hmm. They'd spend hours on the phone. I don't have that time. And it's, it's really bad use of my clients time. They, they need just the key findings from like a five minute survey. Um, and I help determine what the key ones are. And then we, I present those. And then we have a discussion on what are the implications for executing mm-hmm. against those findings. And that's where I want the discussion to be is how do we, based on knowing X, how do we now go execute some things differently? That's what they're paying me for is that discussion. They're not paying to have a discussion about survey design. Right. Well, and I think it hits back and there's there's parallels here to a bunch of other areas that we might talk about in in data leadership broadly. But you're consulting in a space where you're not there to teach the client how to do this thing. You are there to do the thing for them and give them the results and help to craft a plan for this is very strategic. This is very high level management consulting. And that's by design. Right. And so, like, I do think it's very reasonable to say, hey, we're not here to discuss all of the details here. Some of this has come from the fact that I've got decades of experience in this and I know a lot of these fine things. You can pay me to teach you how to do this, but that's not going to be a good use of your investment versus let me do this. Let's have the conversation strategically and make the most of your business. That's what you're, that's what you're there to do. And that is why, Anthony, I actually published a course that will teach anyone with a credit card for $500 how to do everything I just described. Not, I'm not trying to do a plug here with your audience because they'll never buy it. But the point is like the, you never know, the, <laughs> you never know. But, but the point is that to deflect those kinds of clients, mm-hmm. like I actually walked away from a proposal earlier this spring because after I'd sent the proposal and she's, I got this weird follow-up email and I could tell that, uh-oh, here's a client who wants to hold my hand through the entire analytic process. That's how their mind works. Mm-hmm. I have been here. I don't do this. <laughs> I will lose money with this client. <laughs> so so I, I said, I don't know that this is going to work out, blah, 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 sort of nice political walk away. Mm-hmm. And then sent her to my course. She bought it. She's probably happy. Yeah. She wanted total control of the analysis. That's fine. Take my class. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've seen founders, I've seen you know department heads, VPs that have to be that in tune with the detail because that's how they work. And you know what? We're not going to say don't do that. We're just saying what you're offering as yeah. your package. Maybe you were better off with this over here because it resonates more with what you need. Maybe that, that, that's a yeah. better use. You know? Yeah. I mean, I just can't. My business model doesn't allow me to work that way. I, I wouldn't make any money. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that's so, so important for any entrepreneur out there is so to know what you do and say no when it's not something that you do. Like, I, there's but such I also, a, yeah, 
I'll confess that, you know, because I'm an Aspie guy, I get really frustrated with non-experts trying to pretend they're my peer. And this may sound really arrogant to your listeners, but this is how Aspie people operate. Mm-hmm. It really, you know, that, that's something a normal person, they're used to that and they just sort of laugh it off. I can't. It drives me batty. And then I get angry mm-hmm. in front of it. The whole thing gets not good, right? So I know to, I avoid clients like that and try, and I created the course to help them because I need people to defer a little more to my analytical authority than most people would need to do. That's because it's, it's a lot easier for me to run the engagement. I just don't, I, I, um, highly political consulting engagements were never pleasurable for me. Mm-hmm. I probably wasn't very good at some of them, to be honest with you, but I did tend to attract clients who are you, they kind of liked my brash. So, <laughs> so they didn't really yeah. care. Um, and I found the more executive you go in a CPG firm, they don't ask about the details. They don't have time for that. They're just the kind of client I was just referring to, who's my ideal client. It's like, I got so much going on here. It's like, you do your thing. I don't care how you do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just give me a five slide deck and walk me through the implications. That's what, that's what I'm paying you for, man. Yeah. And let them so, interpret it. Let them figure out what they're yeah. going to do about it. Understand your perspective. And then, you know, we recognize that those executives <laughs> will have considerations that are not necessarily our pure purview as consultants, but we do there the best we can. And we, we recognize that maybe what we suggest isn't what they go with exactly, but we hope that they take that into consideration and at least recognize the trade-offs that they're making when they do make their decisions. I learned because of my neurology, I struggled early on in my career and coming out of acting, I struggled a lot, Anthony, with maintaining analytical authority over the client is very dangerous mm-hmm. um uh and then wanting them to agree with almost everything i said <laughs> which is a classic <laughs> sort of young as a young data analyst sort of you know it's sort of like this i would call it narcissism light right <laughs> so, um and i probably struggled more with the former because i had a phd and i was talking to people who i mean literally literally not qualified to debate with me on how to run an interview or how to it just it's just like and they would say the most ridiculous things that have been debunked by social scientists like 100 years ago so, so you can imagine how frustrating that i mean for someone with asperger's i would almost my head would want to explode yeah. it's just like, i'm like i i you know faced with total stupidity you know how do i move forward well you know i have a tantrum and they get upset so I learned what I learned to do is shut all that down in my head. And I think a lot of data analysts, well, first of all, a lot of them do have Asperger's. Mm-hmm. So I think um, they have to learn how to recognize that and you shut that off. But I think you have to determine how much in your career, how much, how much analytical authority with your audience do you want to have to be happy? And I need a lot is what I determined. I need a shit ton. <laughs> I'm very happy right now with my business. So, um, I was miserable being a consultant for a lot of corporate clients because they weren't willing to cede almost any authority. Yeah, and, and I found it insulting. I found it kind of silly, and it just wasn't motivating to me. And I think you have to know that that's who you are. Other people can adapt. Like some of my peers were fine adapting to to a different level of authority with the client. Um, but the, the more important thing is they're not going to agree with some of the things you say. They may not agree with a lot of the things you say. And it took me a while to let go of that. But I think people, you got to let go. of That's the easiest thing to let go of as a data geek 
is whether everybody agrees with you. And here's the thing. They're not always disagreeing with your analysis. You've got to separate a disagreeing with your analysis, which is rarely what's going on. It's disagreeing about whether it has significance. Mm. And, this, <laughs> uh, and this, it took me a decade to learn this as a consultant was, you, like you just said, you're not always privy to all the political context of what is significant in this quarter at Kraft Heinz. <laughs> so it, because you're not even privy, why would you even pretend yeah. that you could get a ton of agreement if you don't know all of that context? And they literally do not want to share it with you because you're an external party. Of course. Yeah. Right. So once I figured, oh, I, they're politically concealing stuff. I get it. Then I just let go of that. And I said, you know, my, my standard became if they agree really happily with one or two things and, it, and they tell me that they can go forward and act on it, I'm now ecstatic. And that when I re, when I recalibrated to that standard, I became much happier person. <laughs> yeah, I can see them. So, and, and that's how I operate today. I don't assume that they're going to move forward everything in our sessions. I just don't even go into them like that. Yeah. But I, I do insist I, I insist on them giving me analytical authority. <laughs> right. You've got to be able to do the job, the work that you do, right? And so yeah, it's in the few minutes that we have left, one yeah. of the things that we talked a lot about in our in our kind of pre-show uh, conversation is, you know, around you've done a tremendous amount of work with like cash register data and, and, you know, how to interpret that. And I think that's something that's so interesting. I just want to spend a couple minutes okay. on Sorry. understanding <laughs> yeah. how you know, cause everybody deals with cash registers. Everybody's been to a grocery store, right? And so <laughs> how you are able to take what is just reams and reams of data that has some quality pluses, some quality minuses, like, but how do you make sense of that? And and can you talk a little bit about too, how you balance the, you know, the mm. quantifiable variables and the non-quantifiable variables? Cause I think that's really interesting as well. So with, I mean, cash register data didn't really be, I mean, it's always existed. It was actually, <laughs> believe it or not, it was manually tabulated by the big retailers. And then you, they used card sorting machines in the sixties. To go analyze it, it took months. <laughs> so, um, I, I don't even know all the details, man. But I just had one old fart tell me this one day. But anyway, McKinsey in the early '80s invented the barcode. Mm. So, <laughs> well done, McKinsey. Good job, right? Because yeah, because we're kind of dependent. So, and what happened is once they invented the barcode, they rolled out laser scanners to every cash register in America. It took about ten years. Mm. And that's what we all see today. And so that's how it's collected. Right. Um, but what happens is that the big, the big companies that collect that data from the retailers, they had metadata, which, you know, we know what that is, right? Mm -hmm. We're clever. And that metadata will be often a whole bunch of promotional information also obtained by the retailer. So, well, what was the sale price? Well, it rang through at this price, but what was the suggested retail price it was sold into the retailer at? And that's only, that's metadata the retailer owns, right? So it's normally a 369, but it rang through the register on discount at 329, right? So, so without the metadata, you, you lose a whole bunch of context, right? Well, you, sure. First of all, you wouldn't know if it was promoted. Right. <laughs> right. So was the, was the shopper reacting to a sale tag or not? That's a big thing. <laughs> Um, we are like lemmings for sale tags. And one of the reasons in, in retail is that there's so much crap there. This is what I learned early on. There's so much crap in these stores that just go into the yellow tag 
it just immediately feels it's on half the ship. So it's like, it's like the reptilian brain just says, yeah. So unless you have a really strong brand preference, and some people do, you know, <laughs> a lot of people just snap to the yellow tone. Yeah. It, it's the, I mean, we have big brains, but you'd be amazed how much they turn off. <laughs> so yeah. when you're faced with cognitive overwhelm, like a supermarket, you've got to start filtering, right? Anyway, so the, you collect all this data. It has a whole bunch of metadata then added to it. Um, and it creates these massive data sets. Um, cash registered data was the first big data set in the computing, in the IT industry. It was. Hmm. Uh, they, you know, Nielsen and these companies have been using supercomputers for years. You know, because they, they were the ones collecting millions and millions of data yeah. points a week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, and now it's, now it's billions of data points a day. So, I mean, they were doing this in the 80s. Yeah. And we've all forgotten this so does we, because we think, big data is, <laughs> we think big data is Google. I mean, come on. So, <laughs> just like, um, they, so big data is great because you can measure all these cool things very precisely, but you know what you can't do is you can't figure out why anyone's buying it. Yeah. And, and that was, if you go back to my first client, Whole Foods, that was why they brought in a bunch of cultural anthropologists like myself, which, cause we were experts in behavioral decoding. So you know, let's filter through narratives about why people buy things and then try to figure out which ones are the most plausible given what they said and given how they lived their life. Cause sometimes people fool themselves, right? Like, Oh, I'm buying this because of blank. But in actuality, the rest of their life suggests that no, um, you're doing this because of status. All right. So my favorite thing with whole foods is you can quickly determine the whole foods customer. Who's a status buyer. Like they're literally, they go to whole foods because they have to tell other people that they go to whole foods. Mm. And they have to come, they have to have Whole Foods like things in their home. Sure. Yeah. When friends come over so that they appear to be um, of a suitable class strata. Uh, so, and the reason you can figure this out, you're know, like, well, that's a really obnoxious thing to say, James. I mean, how, that, how could you come to such obnoxious conclusion about a human being? Well, here's how I can. Because when, I, when we probe them with a very gentle tone of voice, you know, why did you buy this $9 bottled water? They have nothing meaningful to say. Yeah. <laughs> there's no, there's no, other you know. there's like no, there's no geeky narrative about alkalinity and how it comes from the depths of the volcanic mountains. And the, I mean, it's just, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, they'll say things like, well, it's a Voss water bottle and it's really cool. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, when you have no depth behind the why and you have, you're giving them plenty of time. And you you ask in a non-judgmental way, then you know people sort of out themselves. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you can figure out like who's the geek, who's the bottled water geek, and then who's the person who buys Voss because they want it sticking out of their handbag. Yeah. <laughs> now they're never going to admit that to you because Americans don't admit that they're I'm an obnoxious class obsessed person. Now I lived in India for three years; they'll be happy to admit exactly what they're flashing. They'll literally tell you. I've never had such transparent interviews in my life. <laughs> so it's just like, they're not hiding anything. <laughs> it's a very political society. It's very much about yeah. highly political presentations of who you are. Um, whereas Americans, we believe in individuality. Right. We believe that everything we do stems from some vacuum of our individual desire. It's not really true, but we believe, so we tend to narrate. So the first like hour of an interview is usually total BS in the US. 
<laughs> you literally just throw the recording out. Mm-hmm. And once you can soften them up, you start to get much closer to reality. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I learned. <laughs> but the why behind registered data and why you buy things is, is exactly what's missing from most quantitative data sets. And, and I think you can add the data in as metadata. You can add the why in. But that requires human beings. Right. And I think well, before I left my big co sort of consulting career at my prior firm, we had developed a bunch of tools to add qualitatively derived cultural, basically symbolic interpretations of packaged goods items, add that as metadata hmm. to large scale data sets, and then run statistical regressions on here are the design attributes and the symbols, which are correlated to, to actual like non-promoted growth at the register, which is really cool stuff. So, and you learn things, yeah, you learn things like, hey, it's not, it's not the symbols related to sustainability. <laughs> it's this, it's some of it's obvious, right? It's like the symbols related to how much sugar's in the package. Mm. <laughs> highly correlated, like low sugar things are highly correlated to explosive <laughs> growth, <laughs> you know, and I explain in my book why this is culturally like not a big shocker. But if you think about how Americans explain, pro- how we explain like on YouTube and on podcasts, how we explain why we, when we perform, why we do things, we love in America to talk about all these aspirational lofty things. Like I want to, well, I want mother earth to be healthier and I want to minimize climate change. And so what I do, Anthony, is I buy metal or canned water, right? <laughs> so, um, now that actually might be true because canned water is hard to find. And very expensive. So anybody who's buying it probably ha- does have an ideological motive. But when you get into other things where they might have a lazy sustainability greenwashing thing on the package, but they're also like low in sugar, <laughs> the, the social scientist is, you know, I'm going to make a wild guess <laughs> that the things we know lead to explosive growth behaviorally for a damn good reason, which is that there's more at stake for you personally in reducing your weight. Mm-hmm. A lot more at stake. That's right. And it's not even your health, man. It's literally that people stop calling you fat. I hate to say it, but that that it's that stigma, right? And especially in certain social circles. Right. I mean, I have had people say in interviews where they were the only obese person in the office in Seattle. Guess what? They're aware of this. It drives them nuts. People make comments. They think people are making comments. They become neurotic. You can sell those people diet pills mm-hmm. all day long. Because they, they have an immediate proximate social reason to solve the problem that's super important to them. Now, you and I might say, that's really sad. People should be more accepting. Not, let's see, here we go. That's where I get the lofty aspirational. That's not what drives behavior. Right, right. The, the, loft, the things that we talk about on podcasts as like feel-good things, those are the ideals that we want as a society. And maybe we'll actually act on them in a half a century. That's literally how long it takes. And some of them we never will. We'll just continue to talk about them. We'll continue to talk about not having adultery, but we still have a high burn rate on affairs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? 2,000 years we've been talking about that. And it, it's not going anywhere near to zero. Right. And it never will. It never will. Yeah. So then the question is, why do some people cheat on their wives? I mean, that, that, that becomes the real question. It's not like, why don't we act? Why don't we become like the Bible? No, the issue, the question is, why do people cheat on their wives? Because it's only a, it's a it's this group, and here's why. So I think you have to be willing to attack problems with that kind of brutal honesty, and not and fight through kind of the the idealistic noise 
And in my industry, especially because I work with early stage startups, I mean, there's a lot of noise. Like a, a lot of founders really don't, they have very idealistic reasons for starting their business. But in most cases, that is not connected to a behavioral driver that, that will lead to exponential growth. It's going to be something much more crass, Anthony. Hmm. Like, I don't want to be fat anymore is the driver. Hmm. <laughs> and you have given me this really interesting way potentially to solve that and to achieve that outcome. And I will pay you $29.95 for it. And if you can't run your business under accepting that crass behavioral driver, you're going to underperform. So that, that's the premise of my business is that people who perform above average, they intuitively let their organizations work with the consumer's behavior as it exists, whether it's crass, ennobling, whether, whether it makes the founder excited or not. So that, um, that's what I do. And I think that's a val the value for my clients is punching through kind of their own aspirational reasons for founding that company and saying, that's nice. Let's put that over here. What we're going to talk about is why your fans buy your thing. And guess what? It's not always the same. Yeah. It's not always what you're intended for it to be. Yeah. yeah. And if you want to get a return on your marketing dollar or you want to grow fast, you've got to follow what they want. And now this business is no longer about you, Jack and Susan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's about them. That's right. That's right. You're well, their servant. <laughs> so. That is that is very true, and I can't think of a better way to, to end it on it. We are way past time, and and right. you know it, it's been fascinating though, and I really appreciate it. So thank you, know James. Thank you so much for for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Anthony. It was fun, and thank you all for watching or listening today. You'll find more information in the show notes. Please remember to follow Data Leadership Lessons on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review and tell others about us. Learn more about data leadership with my book at dataleadershipbook.com and use promo code AugmanDL at the Dataversity Online Training Center for 20% off your first purchase. Stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact. 